Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's man. Neil Morris, Managing Director of Manx Bird Life. And we're talking hen harriers in this first instance. And some, some good news. So a survey being done this uh, last 12 months over the summer months. And uh, again, we've been talking quite a bit often on the last few times we've been talking and the hen harrier numbers have been going down. But this would seem to give us, well, a good glimmer of hope. Things are looking positive, shall we say, to start. Yes, indeed. Everything's relative, but it's good news this year. Um, we, we've had the highest count of territorial pairs of hen harries on the island since about 2004. I think uh, the reason it's been so good this year is that we've had an excellent survey team in uh, Chris Sharp and Kay Collister scouring the hills for every hen harrier they can find. But I think genuinely as well we can, we can say that uh, the breeding population of hen harriers has for now stabilised itself. Uh, we can't get complacent, um, but it is good news. So what sort of numbers are we actually talking about then compared to the sort of historical highs? Well, the historical high was 57 territorial pairs in about 2004. And we, we've been bobbing at about uh, 29, 30 pairs in the last two censuses since then. Uh, but in this year's, the 2002 census, we're up to 38 territorial pairs. So the way we measure it is to look at the breed and behaviour of birds around the uh, territorials and uh, ter- territories and the potential nesting sites, and we classify them as either definitely breeding from the behaviour that we observe, or probably breeding, or possibly breeding, or not breeding at all. And so the 38 territorial pairs figure is the number of definite and probable pairs that we've been observing. And um, there's a further four possible birds as well. And with 38 definite and probable territorial pairs, that's a fairly firm number. And so that's the headline figure that we use uh, in the results. And why would, would pairs not breed? Would this just be that they haven't found a mate or that would but there be other environmental reasons for them not to breed during the season? A lot of reasons. Some, some birds start to show nesting behaviour and then for some reason it doesn't happen. Um, in other situations you might have a surplus of females and not enough males to service those females. Um, the interesting thing is that the hen harrier can be polygonous and of the uh, core number of um, 31 uh, definite nesting um, pairs that we had probably four or five of those involved polygonous males so you could say that we had 31 or 32 females but we only had 27 or 28 males um, hen harries rarely service more than three nests at a time um, each male um, needs to be part of um, feeding the young and a male can just about manage to service two nests um, while each female concentrates on one nest. And what sort of numbers will we be talking about normally with chicks? Are we talking about one or more than one? Well, they can have a brood of about four young, and um, if it's a good year, they can get all four of those young off the nest. And the reason they have a relatively large number of young for such a large bird of prey is that the mortality rate in their first autumn is very high. Um, 70-80% of young hen harriers don't make it through to breeding age. Are they predated or what's the cause for that? 
Well, a combination of factors. Life is very tough for hen harries on the island because we don't have a lot of the small mammals which would form um, the basis of their prey. Uh, so food can be hard to find. Whether once the winter comes in, if the young haven't learnt to fend for themselves, um, the, win- the winter can quickly see off a lot of young birds. So just to clarify, for those who don't know, so these are birds which do stay island on the island year round? We don't know. And one of the interesting things about this year's census was that the winter roosts, which are coordinated by um, Louise Sampson throughout the winter, um, were showing a distinct lack of grey males, so adult mature males, in the Isle of Man population. So when we started the census, there, there were some significant concerns that the um, number of breeding pairs would be really quite low this year, perhaps continuing that trend that we were seeing of a decrease in numbers since the peak of 2004. Um, But as it happened, we had a lot more breeding males in the population than we were finding in the winter roosts. And that tends to suggest there is some sort of movement going on. Um, But despite some very good satellite tagging work that we've done in the past, we don't really understand the movements of the the, the Isle of Man hen harrier population. And you mentioned those uh, satellite taggings. What's left of those? Because I know there was a programme, I think it was the RSPB a while back, I think they did several, and there's only one left that we know of still with the tag working? Yes, we satellite tagged in the end about uh, 15 birds over a um, 12, 13 year period. Sadly, only one of those birds is still surviving. Um, She's called May. And indeed, we, um, through the RSPB's um, tracking team, we knew that she was on the island during the breeding season. And initially, there were indications that she was perhaps settling in one area, looking to find a mate and nesting. Um, but it transpired that she didn't eventually nest and she's still out there somewhere. And so do, do we have any idea of what happened to the, the other 13, 14 birds? They all probably perished. The satellite tags are pretty robust. Um, we, we've we recovered quite a number of the birds um, and so far it appears that they've died of natural causes, um, bar, bar one or two. Um, Certainly those birds that have been retrieved on the island with their satellite tags still working um, appear to have perished from natural causes and that's that's probably very likely because of the struggle to get through their first winter. Um, We've had birds go off island and and a couple, um, the circumstances are highly indicative that they were snaffled around a grouse moor, um, one in England, one in Wales. And then we've had one bird, Mary, who is in fact the sister of May, the one remaining satellite tagged bird that we've got. Um, Mary was poisoned with carbofurin in Ireland. And so that, that's a very clear situation where we've got um, primary evidence of persecution. Oh, would that be presumably someone like what, a, a landowner or a gamekeeper or something wanting to, to get rid of birds of prey or...? It was, I believe it was around a pheasant shoot, and it's quite common practice to put illegal poisons around these um, areas to prevent birds of prey and other predators, ground predators, from taking um, the game birds which have been captive reared for shooting. And it must have been, I'm not clear on, on the actual normal, if given, given sort of reasonable conditions and reasonable food sources, what would you expect a, or, uh, the lifespan of a hen harrier to be? That's a really good question. Um, I would suggest between five and ten years. They can be quite long-lived birds. And um, 
once a bird has learnt to survive that first winter, um, aside from persecution, the prospects are pretty good. So I, I would say um, five to ten years is about average. Um, I'm sure some birds can live up to about 15 years of age. So fairly long-lived birds in the, in the scale of things then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, larger birds of prey tend to be quite long-lived. Um, some of the larger birds of prey don't breed every year because it's a very energetic um, process. But hen harriers, part of their strategy is to have large clutches, large broods, um, because there is this high mortality rate in the first uh, winter. Uh, looking at the, the report itself, there are a few interesting points, and uh, one of the things that caught my eye here is, is the actual area. So they're, they're almost exclusively in the uplands. I see there's a line saying there were no reports of any hen harriers in any of the Manx lowlands or coastal areas. Yes, yes. That, that's a really interesting one, and I think that is a product of persecution over the years. Um, hen harrier across the European continent are both upland and mid-level lowland birds. Um, and sometimes they actually come down into very low-level um, grassland areas. But um, perhaps across the more developed areas of Europe and certainly in the British Isles, we've pushed them up into the uplands, into the remote places where there has been less disturbance. Um, they used to breed in the lowlands, but um, a combination of persecution, poisoning, disturbance, all the issues you can think of, has really pushed the, the relic populations up somewhere where they can breed safely um, without being disturbed and of course when when you now have commercialization of some of these uplands as happens across that that brings that commercial activity into conflict with some of these last remote places where hen harries are hanging on it's not quite the situation on the island i have to say um but we we first had hen harries nesting here in about 1977 and they clearly came from off the island and so they probably brought with them that upland nesting habit. And how do we actually compare them, or how does the island compare to the rest of the British Isles when it comes to our to our hen harrier population? Are, are we still well up, or are we actually sort of lagging behind now? No, no, we're doing very well. Um, Scotland is probably the stronghold. England has always been very bad, um, although it has to be said there has been some recent su- success in England. But the Isle of Man still has more nesting pairs of hen harrier um, in our small territorial space than the whole of England has. And that's a remarkable result. So the density of the population here is excellent. It shows what's possible. The issue in England is that there's a diktat from natural England that um, where there's conflict with commercial interests, hen harries will not be allowed to nest more than 10 kilometres um, in proximity to each other, which, which is absolutely crazy. And clearly here, with, with 38 birds in such a small space, they're breeding well within that 10-kilometre proximity. So it, show, it shows the potential, and it shows that some of the, the less populous areas across the British Isles are less populous because of our persecution of them. Here on the island, we don't know of any persecution of hen harriers um, specifically, and they do very well. And do we know any particular reason why the hen harrier as a bird of prey seems to sort of struggle more than, say, I'm just thinking of buzzards, which seem on the island now going out and about. Suddenly now buzzards seem to be all over the place. Is there a reason why something like a species like the buzzard will do so well and the hen harrier struggles in comparison? It's it's about um, ability to cope with human presence and it's about availability of prey. Those are the two key things. So buzzards are relatively new colonist 
Well, I should say recolonist because we know historically it was here many hundreds of years ago, but it's only recently refound the island and it's found a, an, an open niche for it. Um, they they're happy to nest in close proximity to people, um, to, to 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 active areas where you've got farming going on for example which the hen harrier will not do the hen harrier will shy well away from any sort of human habitation and activity but also with the buzzards their main prey is rabbit both rabbit carcasses and live rabbits and they found a huge availability of prey here on the island and so they've um one winter they, they arrived in big numbers here. I think a lot of those birds then stayed and bred, and that has fueled this population expansion which we're seeing now. Well, it's fascinating because, as you say, I mean, suddenly they seem to be far more prevalent than ever before. And do, do we know why? I mean, the, the rabbit population presumably has been relatively constant on the Isle of Man, but suddenly they came in one year and thought, well, a great food source here, a good place to stay. Well, I think I think the numbers were very slowly climbing, and they they got this boost with this big winter influx we had about five six years ago, and it is just that availability of prey. Um, there's, again, a, a lack of um, persecution of birds of prey on the island, as far as we know. Um, when buzzards have pushed into other areas across the British Isles, they have been subject to persecution and their growth has been somewhat slowed down. But I think here they just found conditions, nesting conditions and availability of prey absolutely to their liking. Um, there, there is a bit of conflict between hen harriers and buzzards in terms of birds of prey occupying the same areas. Um, a hen harrier, though, is very aerial, aerially adapt, adept and can quite happily take on a buzzard. Um, hen harriers are much more manoeuvrable and agile and can see off a buzzard. Um, but buzzards are big, robust birds and they do pose a bit of a threat to, to nesting hen harriers and um, potentially taking young hen harriers. So they're, they're, they're birds of very different characters. They're, they're typically nesting in different areas and... Um, the signs are with this year's census of hen harriers and the observations of, of buzzards, um, anecdotal and um, specific reports we get in, that the two are just about getting along okay. Yeah. And, and just as a, so an interesting sideline, talking about obviously the numbers, particularly of the hen harriers in this report, but, I mean, do you think it is it is possible, as you were saying, with the buzzards and maybe some of the other birds of prey happier to live in closer proximity to sort of mankind or human habitation, wherever that might be, with the sort of things, of the likes of them, you know, natural selection and evolution, is it possible that a species like the hen harrier over generations might actually be able to adapt to living more, more closely to mankind if that was the case? That's a really good question. I think the evidence so far is that there are species, and if we just limit ourselves to birds here, there, there are species of birds which will become habituated to human presence. If we think about house martins and swallows, for example, um, and swifts particularly, the things that we do can actually benefit them, and they're quite happy to live with us. But there, there are a lot of species that the evidence seems to be that they have a very um, timid nature, and they possibly won't ever um, adapt, and they're more likely to be pushed out, to be extirpated by our activities um, before they have the time um, to adapt to our, our presence. And it's those birds which we're pushing out. They just don't have the time to change their behaviour, um, to be behave their re reactions, to change their reactions to us, 
um, before their populations dwindle to a point where they disappear. Another interesting line from the reports of that along those lines, uh, generally, is the Manx hen harriers genetically diagnosable from their UK, Irish and European counterparts. So if, if I'm understanding that correctly, so it means if you had one bird from the Isle of Man and one, say, from Northern Ireland, you could actually distinguish each one each from, from their genetic print. Yes, this is based on some research that was presented to us a few years ago. And um, we're, we're waiting for an update on that research to see... Uh, where it takes us. But the the early indication was that if you were to put samples, DNA samples, molecular samples of hen harriers um, into an an analytical machine, you could diagnose where those hen harriers came from. And you, you could tell a Manx hen harrier bit of DNA from an Irish bit of hen harrier DNA from a Scottish piece from a European um piece of, of Max Harriet DNA. So diagnosably identifying where these different populations are and if you have a dead bird you can potentially use that information to know which population it came from. It's very powerful stuff. I think um, it's exciting, it's interesting that there is a bit of a sting in the tail that probably the genetic distinctiveness of our hen harriers suggests that as a breeding population they're insular. So if we go back to your question about the movements of these birds, do they stay on the island? Um, Where are these additional grey males coming from that we know are in the breeding population but aren't in the wintering population? It's it's a little bit of a conundrum that, that we seem to have the genetics telling us it's an insular population, probably quite sedentary and not mixing with other populations. And yet we know there are these movements of the birds taking place. And, and maybe some of it comes down to sight fidelity. Um, birds of prey typically do wander um, in the winter, and young birds particularly so, but they always seem to come back to their natal area, and, and that sort of fidelity to their natal area is probably at the root of the fact we have this genetically diagnosable population. And so do you think, would that suggest long-term then that, that you, know, you could end up with sort of subspecies of, of, of hen harriers, <laughs> depending on where they were? It's a nice thought. I mean, I've always thought that we should have a Manx endemic. Um, I, I like the black guillemot. I call that the Manx penguin. But it, but it's, it's really not the equivalent of some of the exciting endemic birds that you find on these far-flung islands. Um, I, I, I think the less flippant response is that one would worry that if they are too insular um, within small populations, um, that the genes can become rather poor. And that doesn't bode well for the long-term survivability, the sort of physical health of those birds over a long period of time. So you need some exchange between the different gene pools. And um, I think for the small numbers we're talking about, for the small area and the connectivity that we do have with other areas, it's probably highly unlikely that we'll ever really call it the Manx Hen Harrier or the Manx Harrier, but it's a lovely idea. (laughs) So it is positive news you were saying overall coming out of this report. However, like all these things, that does not mean, of course, that we think, great, they're fine, let's forget about them and let them just tick on. Going forward, what do we, what do we, or what do we need to sort of do as an island if we're wanting to protect our species? And I'm right in saying all, all, all the uh, native uh, birds of prey on the island, they're all protected? Yes. Um, under the Wildlife Act, it's illegal to take, injure, kill a wild bird. And the only exceptions are the few birds that you can shoot during the appropriate shooting season and the few birds that you can obtain a license to control 
um, if indeed they are becoming a, a pest. So the law's pretty good in generality, um, and particularly during the breeding season, something like hen harrier, which is listed under Schedule 1 of the Wildlife Act, um, attracts additional penalties if it's disturbed during the nesting season or if its eggs or nest are destroyed. And that's good protection. It's a good base for protection. But birds do an awful lot more than just nest. They have to feed. They need to roost at night time. And, and a lot of birds need to just loaf, um, have time resting, recuperating their energies. And um, the protection for traditional roosting sites for traditional feeding areas and particularly traditional loafing areas is non-existent per se. So if you take a bird like hen harrier, it's it's wonderful that it's schedule one listed, which means that they're especially protected during the breeding season. But away from the active period of nesting, that nesting site, which is probably used year after year after year, um, is not protected and could be gone in an instant and then those birds come back and they have to find an inferior place to breed. So I, I, th I think protection of traditional roosting, uh, sorry, traditional nesting areas is really important for birds like hen harrier. Um, but also roosting, I've talked about the roosting sites, the winter roosts of the hen harrier. And we think there are probably up to a dozen different roost, uh, winter roosting areas across the island. And they are, they are specially chosen by the birds as places where there's no nighttime disturbance, um, places that are very difficult and remote for predators to get to, and that the birds can safely rest on the ground communally overnight. And they use these places year after year. And so those, those places need protection so that they're always available for the hen harriers. Otherwise, we'll end up forcing them into lesser and lesser roosting areas where they do become vulnerable. And again, it puts a pressure on the bird at a particular time in, it, in its life cycle where it needs protection. So bearing in mind all the birds, as we were saying, were in the, sort of the uplands, do, do we need to make any changes, do you think, to, to our uh, upland management schemes on the island? Um, I think the uplands have been managed very well, and I'd, I'd like to think that the, the 38 territorial pairs of hen harry that we do still have up in the uplands is testament to that. So uh, there's absolutely no implied criticism there at all. I think it's all about enhancement improvement from this point. We, we know that the island can potentially carry upwards of 50 pairs of hen harrier, so it would be nice to set an ambition to get from 38 back towards that 50. Um, and I think probably despite the, the uptick in numbers this year, over time the general trend is downwards and there are just increasing pressures on the upland um, in terms of use of those uplands, in terms of the number of people in those uplands, the, the, the opportunity for disturbance of nest birds that are nesting and, and roosting. So I think we have to think carefully about whether there can be protections for nesting sites, for roosting sites, so that we at least know that when the birds have these key behavioural things they have to do, they can safely and securely do those without pressure. And that, that, that across the life cycle of a bird, across its year, across its weekly activities, takes an enormous amount of pressure off it. But, you know, if, if we're lifting the island population 
um, from 85 to 100,000. Um, if we're wanting to increase our number of visitors by 170,000 to half a million, we have to think really carefully whether we have the comm commensurate protections for our wildlife that that sort of increase in usage of the land um, imply, uh, um, implicates. Just another line that uh, caught my eye in the, in the report, uh, the precautionary principle when human activities lead, may lead to morally unacceptable harm that is scientifically plausible, but uncertain actions shall be taken to avoid or diminish that harm. Is, is, that, is that sort of sideways uh, addressing the, uh, the wallaby in the room, as it were? <laughs> we knew we'd get on to that. I think it's really important because when one tries to present a problem, the, the knee-jerk reaction from decision-makers is always, give us the evidence, give us the evidence. When we think about planning, we have to provide evidence to stop that development. There's no presumption that there might be a problem being caused by that development or a proposed activity. And it's very hard, it's timely, it, it, it's very expensive, and it takes a long time to provide... Um, hard, robust and rigorous evidence to show the damage that's being done to wildlife. And by the time you've, you've acquired that evidence, well, the damage has been done. Um, so I, I think the precautionary principle is important. It's becoming much more widely recognised as a tool whereby if it's common sense and if it's reasonably obvious that damage to wildlife is going to be done, use the precautionary principle to prevent that damage happening rather than expecting detailed research over many years to be obtained in order to make a case not to do that damage. And I think when we're talking about certain things and certain cases, um, common sense tells you things should not happen. You'll ask me for an example. I, I would suggest that the hotel development on Langness is an example where common sense tells you that um, a huge leisure facility and indeed now a residential fa uh, facility um, proposed in what is a five-fold protected designated area for wildlife is going to damage that wildlife. It, it, it's blindingly obvious. So the precautionary principle tells us that we don't need to spend years gathering detailed evidence. We just need to take a common sense approach view and say in an area that has five designations to protect the wildlife, the intrusion of such a development and its impact is obvious. So let's be sensible and take a decision now. Um, and I think with wallabies as well, the thing with wallabies is there are two ways of looking at it. Yes, the precautionary principle tells us that anecdotally we know they're doing damage. Do we really want to spend public money, our donors' money, on researching and coming up potentially with ambiguous results and then having to go through more research to get definitive results? It's always the case you do a first round of research and you often have to drill into that to get your definitive results. Um, and so the precautionary principle says it, it's clear they have been doing damage. Um, we feel it's clear that um, the wallabies um, will continue to cause problems to populations of birds like curlew, hen harrier, um, etc. So let's act now. Let's not 
waste money and time. Let's act now. But the other half of the story about the wallabies is they shouldn't be out in the wild. It's a non-native alien species. Um, which should never have got into the wild. It would be now illegal to put those out into the wild. Um, so as a point of principle, let's bring them back in f from the wild, do the right thing, and then we can start looking at robust management plans to get some of these habitats and species back where they should be. So looking forward, you're very pragmatic, down to earth, and you know, at, the, at the coal faces that we're looking at this, do you, do you remain optimistic going forward about uh, hen harriers, obviously, particularly in this report, uh, the numbers you've said overall, maybe the trend might be down. Can we sustain a sort of certain number, even if we can't necessarily grow them exponentially over the sort of the years, even with management principles in place? Do you think we can sort of have a, a, a core a core number there which we can sustain? I, th I think I'm inherently a glass half full person. Um, and and. and Till we've lost our hen harrier population, there's always the opportunity for it to be better and stronger. I think, honestly, what, what does concern me deeply is that we do now have some fairly robust um, political strategies to grow the number of people on this island, um, whether it, it's the overall economic strategy or the visit, visitor economy strategy, for example. What we don't have are the commensurate, commensurate policies and strategies to protect the wildlife from that increase in the number of people. So, so people bring disturbance, um, people bring light pollution, noise pollution, chemical pollution. We bring um, domestic animals with us. Um, we, we, as a side effect, increase the vermin around our habitations. Um, and, and we just bring a lot of intrusion into the wild spaces that remain. So I, I think my optimism is tempered by the lack of um, protection for wildlife um, alongside the strategies which are going to increase all the problems that we know currently exist. So I suppose like so many things in life, and particularly with conservation, and uh, whether it's birds or whether it's mammals or whatever we're talking about, it's finding that, that, that balancing point and that obviously mankind is here as well and we've got to find space to live in a, a sustainable way with the creatures we share the space with, realistically. Absolutely, and I think we have to ask ourselves, um, in, in, in a very discrete, defined space that we have on the island, both, both our territorial island and the seas around our island, um, what is the ceiling for that human um, impact? Uh, at what point do we have to say, if we go any further, we will destroy everything? And I don't think we really have an understanding of that at the moment. And when you think about birds like hen harriers being emblematic of these wild, remote places um, with, with a, 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 an intact food chain that supports them, you have to watch those indicators very carefully. And it, and it is really nice to be able to sit here with you and share some good news that the hen harrier population seems to be stable. It's had a bit of an uptick. Um, but I personally remain deeply worried that it's a blip on the chart. And unless we really think carefully about protecting these birds throughout their life stages, and it's not just hen harriers, um, and unless we think about that intrusion into those remaining wild spaces, I think we're in, on, in, into a downhill slope very quickly.